Welcome to the MindBeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health, from sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation. MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another great episode of the MindBeat podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. We're really excited to have you with us today. We have a really, really uh, great, great guest, uh, Dr. Sharon Hoover, who is a professor at the University of Maryland and is the co-director of the National Center for School Mental Health and the director of the National Center for Safe and Supportive Schools. So, Lane, when I think about thought leaders in school-based mental health, uh, Sharon is somebody who I think really has a, a tremendous amount of knowledge, a tremendous national perspective, and I'm really excited to speak with her today. I am too. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. How are you doing? Good. Everything good with you? I'm pretty good. I, I mean, I'm just very busy, but yeah, I'm good. I'm so so I, I was mentioning to you before, I'm, I'm doing well, thanks. Um, you know, the, the main piece of podcast feedback that I've gotten is that uh, we talk about food a lot. And I think that's probably yeah. gu guilty as charged, right? Guilty so. as charged. We had what I think it's after we interviewed Natasha, I was getting calls about nut milks. Well, my favorite nut milk is this. Yeah. <laughs> I had said coconut milk was one of my favorite <laughs> nut milks. I've had all kinds of comments when I see uh, colleagues and people who are, who are tuning in about, you know, their favorite nut milk as well. Yeah. And I had someone who <laughs> just came up to me and said, I love the blue checks mix. Right? Blue so I feel like I feel like it's like a secret uh -huh. code of like mind beat listeners, like a we're all foodies, brotherhood, sisterhood that we're all kind of a part of now. It must so. be that you know we're all foodies. That's okay. Absolutely, I love so. being a foodie. So we, we've got I, I know a lot to cover with uh, Sharon, and I know we want to give her enough time. So why don't we why don't we jump directly into kind of our uh, our top three and our in the top news? Three. Then we'll, we'll get we'll get right to it. Okay, so today's top three is tips to navigate student stress. So that could include things like exam time, college decision time, just their social life, all the uh, obligations and extracurriculars that kids have nowadays. So, you know, I'm the reset lady. I uh, So the, my first tip is to have kids uh, learn when they need a reset. What does that look like? Do I start having particular thought patterns like I, I don't want to do this anymore? I want to give up. I want to quit. Uh, I want to go home. <laughs> you know, what are your thought patterns? Uh, what are your behaviors? How do you feel in your body? Is your heart beating fast? Are you starting to sweat a little bit? Do you have an urge to cry? You know, what is it for you? How do you know you need a reset? Get in touch with that. Number two, I would say is learn how to reset. Once you have the recognition tools, how do I do it? So that can be anything from deep belly breathing, uh, all kinds of mindfulness techniques, daily self-care, having a schedule that makes sense for you. And uh, I would say number three would be that it's okay to ask for help. I think the three hardest things I hear in life to, to say are, I, I need help, I'm sorry, and I love you. So I need help is, is hard for a lot of us. I'll actually put myself in there. It's hard to ask for help sometimes. But whether that's a, a college counselor, there's so much that, you know, you have a daughter getting ready to go to college. I'm sure you know there's so much that goes into the college process. I just went through that last year with my son. Get help. Get help. It's okay to ask for help. Um, 
you know, whether it's just your guidance counselor to, to let them know I'm experiencing some, some challenges with my mental health. Uh, friends, parents, ask a teacher, a trusted adult in your life. It's okay to ask for help. So those are my, my top three. Do you good. have any, uh, any opinions on that? No, I think Thoughts? that, I think that's, that's great. And, and certainly I can't think of anybody, you know, better equipped to kind of opine on that than, than you. Thank my, you. My mind is going through kind of other things in life that would be hard to say. Uh, yeah. you know, there's three things that you mentioned, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like help, I'm trapped under something heavy. Oh. You know, I'm just trying to think of like other, <laughs> yeah, yeah. other things that would be really difficult to say yeah. kind of in your, in your I life. I think it's but, just hard for people to, you know, um, sometimes people see needing help as a sign of weakness. And so I think that it's difficult to ask, um, or you don't want to burden people or be a bother or something. So I, I, I don't know all the reasons why people find it difficult to ask for help, but it is, it's, it's hard sometimes. Yeah, and I do think for our young people, um, and I, I was reading kind of a, a similar article that was talking about just the importance of kind of social connection. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's been a byproduct of COVID, right? Is that yeah. our young people have been really used to kind of operating in kind of a isolation zone right. in a way that they weren't kind of pre pandemic. And so sometimes that, that kind of reticence to ask for help is because they don't have the social connections to, to seek out and they don't have that kind of willing listener on the, on the other end. And so that's why I think kind of just getting, getting, finding all opportunities that we can for our young people to socialize and reconnect with each other, I think is a yeah. big, big piece of this as well. Loneliness is at the root of a lot of this. Well, to your point, even just being able to talk even on the phone, let alone in person, I think stresses out the, this generation right now, this Gen Z generation that, you know, if you're not texting me, why are you calling me? Yeah, Did you call exactly. me? Like, like, give me a text, Sorry, a heads pocket, up, pocket, pocket right? Dial, right? <laughs> right. So, like, yeah. don't text me and, and ask me if I want to have a phone call. I can't just talk to you. Um, people want to have, you know, a, a, an appropriate amount of time in between to respond, to prepare a response now. So yeah. I think talking in person and saying things off the cuff and being vulnerable has been very challenging for this generation, I mean, for every generation, but particularly for this generation that has really gotten away from even phone etiquette or having to, you know, ask for resources by via phone or whatever. So... Yeah, the socialization yeah. piece has really gone. I would, I would say based on my direct observation of my kids, the the hierarchy of communication methods for like a 14-year-old, yeah. it's probably like, you know, Snapchat at yep. the top, yep. you know, texting number two or yep. probably, you know, Instagram messenger or, yep. or whatever that is. Uh, uh, probably group FaceTime number mm -hmm. three. I think there's like safety in numbers. Yeah. If you're on kind of a FaceTime with a bunch of friends, that's good. Then mm -hmm. regular FaceTime, then calling all the <laughs> then way, regular. all the way at the bottom. And then probably, probably like letter writing would yeah. be like all the way, all the way at the passing bottom. Passing a note. Yeah. Right, exactly. I don't think they're writing exactly. any letters. Yeah. 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 <laughs> passing uh, a note might school. be, passing a note might be up there somewhere, but yeah. Why would you pass a note if you could just text somebody? Text somebody, somebody right. right. So, yeah. But I don't, I don't think there's a lot of letters with like cursive flowing cursive oh, my, script. Kind I'm of not written, sorry. Yeah. I don't mean to embarrass my child, but he's probably not alone in this. I remember when he was, I think in middle school or something, he got like a, like a little love note from somebody and it was in cursive. He couldn't even read it. He yeah. had to bring me the note to read the, him the, because he couldn't the, read cursive. You're the, you're the cursive translator. I'm that could be like a nice trans niche career for somebody, right? right? It's kind of like, you know, it's a lost you know, Lane art. Whitaker, professional cursive translator. Well, you don't want to see me write in cursive anymore. I've got my signature down. I, I even writing period, my, my writing has taken a real decline. It hurts my hand after so long too, like not very long, I should say. So gotten really far away from writing regularly anymore yeah i fell off the cursive train at about age 12 like if you mm -hmm. if you if i if the you know my life depended on me writing cursive right now i don't know if i could pull that off that would be <laughs> or it's like a, a mixture of cursive and print sometimes like some letters will be cursive and others will be in print yeah cursive or Purse. you can need to come up with a name for that so anyhow mm -hmm. we should we should we should move on so uh let's get to uh let's get to in the news 
Uh, we got a quick one uh, today. Um, you know, the in the news topic that we're going to cover is a recent CBS News documentary called Kids in Crisis. So we wanted to point everybody's attention to this. Uh, this is an initiative where CBS News and local CBS-owned television stations spent more than six months exploring the sources of the youth mental health crisis. And they've got a documentary that is now um, uh, it's available on the CBS News website. We'll also post a link kind of up on the, the ESS website uh, in the in the, the MindBeat description that you can access. And it, uh, it aired on Wednesday night, March 1st, and, and the film is now available on demand. Uh, for educators listening to this, there are also downloadable facilitator guides. So if you are looking to um, initiate or guide a conversation about kind of mental health, you know, uh, with your students or as part of a kind of parent slash community group PTA, uh, this could be a good resource that you might want to you might want to check out. Sounds good. Well, Lane, we got a great guest uh, today. So uh, why don't you do the do the honors on the introduction, and then I'm really excited to uh, jump into our discussion with Sharon Hoover. Yes, it's an honor to have her here. So let me tell you a little bit about Sharon. Sharon A. Hoover, PhD, is a licensed clinical psychologist and professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Dr. Hoover is co-director of the National Center for School Mental Health and director of the National Center for Safe Supportive Schools. She currently leads national efforts to support states, districts, in schools and the adoption of national performance standards of comprehensive school mental health systems. Dr. Hoover has led and collaborated on multiple federal and state grants with a commitment to the study and implementation of quality children's mental health services. Currently, she co-leads two large randomized trials of school mental health efforts, one focused on reducing exclusionary discipline practices by installing mental health and restorative practice approaches and one on improving school mental health services with best practices and family engagement, educator mental health literacy, and modularized evidence-based clinical practices. Sharon, it is an honor to have you here. Thank you so much uh, for, for coming. So I'd first like to know about kind of your career path, the trajectory, what kind of got you here, and if you could share more about the, the mission and the work of the National Center for School Mental Health. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me today. So as far as my own career path, I have to say I have known I wanted to be a psychologist for about as long as I can remember. Uh, I probably back to my early teens, uh, I, I was debating between do I want to go into education? Do I want to go into mental health? And it was probably at about age 13 that I was uh, volunteering actually in a um, uh, classroom in a school over a summer, and it was really working with some children with special needs. And so I found, you know, my calling pretty early in terms of whether it was going to be in a classroom or in some kind of mental health field. And so I knew when I went off to school that I wanted to study psychology. I'd also taken a little bit of psychology in high school. So I knew for a while this is what I wanted to do. And so it was a pretty straight course for me in terms of mental health, I did not know that I would land in school mental health, which is where I've spent most of my career now. And that, even though I knew I loved, you know, the idea of education and schools as a place for supporting young people, I didn't really know much about the field of school mental health. So I went on to the University of Maryland to do my graduate studies. And at the end of your graduate studies as a psychologist, you often do what's called an internship and a postdoctoral fellowship. 
And I happened upon the National Center for School Mental Health. And this was over 20 years ago now. And I decided to go there for my postgraduate training. And once I landed in schools as a psychologist, I knew this is where I needed to be and where I wanted lots of people to be in terms of supporting young people's mental health. Uh, so that's a little bit about my own path. And I've, you know, been a psychologist in the field practicing with young people and families now for a long time. And then since 2010 have co-directed the National Center for School Mental Health. So I can tell you a little bit about our center. We've been around actually since 1995. So before I got there, uh, we were established and we're funded out of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And our mission really is to advance what we call comprehensive school mental health systems across the nation. And the idea really is that we need to better integrate mental health supports for young people all the way from Every young person in a school building needing things like mental health literacy and social emotional competencies to embedding mental health treatment services in the school building, just because we know young people are much more likely to get them if they're offered in schools. So that's a little bit about our center. That's great, Sharon. Thank, thanks for sharing that. I mean, do you feel like in some ways that like society and education has kind of caught up to what you been talking about and the center has been advocating for for the last kind of, you know, 20 to, to 30 years, uh, school mental health. Clearly, I, I think it's probably fair to say that it's getting more dialogue on kind of the, the national stage now than it, than it probably ever, ever has. How, how does that feel? Uh, and, and kind of what would you classify as the, the kind of state of the practice right now when you look at, you know, school mental health now versus kind of pre-COVID for example, how do you feel like the progression is and where are we on that kind of maturity journey for school districts at this point? So we're thrilled. I totally agree with your assessment that all of a sudden there's, you know, national dialogue happening around something that we feel like we've been talking about for 20 plus years, you know, back in the late 80s in Baltimore City, where our center was established, we first started having community partners work with our school systems with the recognition that young people just weren't making it to community mental health treatment settings. And so we started in four schools in Baltimore. Baltimore City. So you fast forward now, 30 years later, and comprehensive school mental health systems is across, you know, the media everywhere. It's in federal legislation. It's in state legislation. We're seeing a huge investment in school mental health. So we feel like, ah, I don't want to say our job is done because it's not, but it's really awesome to have a lot of people speaking the same language uh, and really recognizing that, Part of the mission of schools is mental health and well-being of its young people. In terms of kind of what is the state of practice right now, I mean, I still think we have a long way to go, so which is why I say our job is not done. Um, there's certainly still folks who think that the only mission of schools is reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, and that mental health is something that should be kept, you know, in the domain of the family and the community. We wouldn't argue that there should be a shared commitment to mental health with families and, and community members and schools, but we can't imagine a society where schools don't really take some of the shouldering or some of the responsibility for supporting young people's mental health and well-being. In yes. terms of kind of what's happening with schools as far as like day-to-day -day practice at this intersection of mental health and education, 
In the last decade, but certainly since uh, the pandemic, we've seen more and more community mental health providers partnering directly with schools to actually augment the services and supports that are provided by the schools. So we first always talk about the foundation of mental health supports in school buildings, being your educators, being your supported, uh, supportive uh, professionals like your school psychologists, school social workers, school counselors, school nurses. But what we're seeing increasing is not only the numbers of those professionals and the awareness of educators in terms of their responsibility to support mental health, but also community mental health saying, hey, we can help out here. Instead of sitting in our offices where we have over a 50% no-show rate in most community mental health treatment centers, we can actually be embedded in schools and see young people and even their families in the context of schools, sometimes during the school day, sometimes before, sometimes after school, sometimes via tele. So the state of practice is really catching up to the need that young people have, which is mental health supports in all areas of their life, family, community, and school. Yeah, it makes it makes sense. I mean, the, the observation we've kind of had is it seems like over the last five years, most districts seem to have the the will to to really be a critical part of the school mental health of the of the youth mental health continuum. Um, I think the biggest challenges challenges we see with districts right now is kind of understanding what to do and and how to how to do it. Does that resonate with you? Is that is that kind of you know part of what you're observing as, as well? Just desire for technical assistance, understanding what best practices look like, et cetera. We're seeing a huge uptick in state and district desire for doing it right and reaching out to our center, reaching out to their TA partners regionally and locally to say, how do we do this well? How do we fund it? How do we sustain it? You know, this is, this goes beyond just hiring a mental health professional and placing them in the school, which is why we talk about comprehensive school mental health systems. It's really a full system of multi-tiered supports for young people and even for the adults in the building. So it's not, again, it's not simply hiring someone and there's a recognition of that. So I would say more and more states and districts recognize this need in part because of kind of the, the visibility of the youth mental health crisis and the recognition that if we don't address it, it will not only impact quality of life of our young people, but also their academic success. Um, but there are certainly still districts who struggle with what is our role in terms of supporting mental health during the school day, right? There's, you know, some people worry that schools are becoming kind of the, the place where every business needs to be delivered, right? And so they, they are trying, they grapple with kind of where does this fit, especially when we have so many demands on our educators for providing instruction during the day. So it's, it's a challenge for a lot of districts. I think they all care about young people's mental health. They just try to figure out how it fits within their, their mission and their work. Right. I would agree. I think that the pandemic certainly uh, accelerated the mental health, um, you know, push to, to get services for, for students. Uh, at the same time, I think that people don't know exactly what to do. Like, you're right. I, I don't know if they understand how to use services. Um, and questionably, uh, especially sustainability is definitely an issue as well, how to sustain the efforts mm -hmm. once you get them in place. So I'm wondering what are the key components of a high-functioning school-based mental health continuum? You know, having said that, that, you know, some districts are still struggling with that, what would be the ideal scenario in your opinion? What would that look like? 
Sure. In fact, this was the question we were asked back in 2014 by our federal funders. You know, they recognized that there were a lot of states and districts who wanted to do this well, but didn't know how to concretize what school mental health is beyond just hiring people, hiring bodies in the building, right? So they asked us to actually establish kind of what would high quality school mental health look like and to develop a set of national performance standards so that any school, any district can actually go in and assess how they're doing according to these national performance standards. So we actually have several domains of what high quality comprehensive school mental health look like. And it includes first just doing some of the the basic core functions of school mental health, including teaming, which is really the idea that you need to have effective teams within a school and then between communities and schools to support a full continuum of mental health. We also have a domain on needs assessment and resource mapping. And the idea here is every community is gonna look a little bit different in terms of what they have to offer for mental health. And you wanna take a really close look at what does the community have to offer? What does the school have to offer? Identify your strengths and your needs and go from there instead of assuming that there's a one size fits all approach to mental health in schools. You know, if you're talking a remote small uh, school district in Nebraska, that's very different than the schools we're serving in Baltimore City, for example, in terms of the staffing needs, in terms of kind of the capacity to access community supports, et cetera. You know, sometimes in our small rural districts, you've got a school nurse as your mental health provider, and they may only be in a school a half a day a week or even one day a month. And so it's very different than the staffing you might see in more dense, um, densely populated areas. So those are a couple of the core areas. But then in terms of kind of what do the services look like? Again, I've used the term multi-tiered system of supports. That's a pretty common term used in, in education. And so we always would argue that, you know, mental health in schools is not just about serving young people who have identified mental health needs. It's really first starting with your foundation of tier one. And tier one or universal supports would include things like mental health literacy, which is basically providing uh, mental health knowledge or education to teachers and to students in the classroom. Uh, a lot of states are now looking at this. We have some states who've actually mandated mental health literacy in the curriculum. New York and Virginia pioneered uh, some of this legislation. So mental health literacy, social emotional learning, we've seen social emotional learning standards now adopted in many states. And this is really just providing our young people with those social emotional learning competencies that they need. So mental health literacy, social emotional learning, again, things like restorative practices and positive discipline um, or positive behavior um, programming, like good behavior game or PBIS, positive behavior interventions and supports. So there's all these universal practices that really support the well being of every person in the school building and promote a positive school climate. Then as you move up the tiers, you've got tier two, you've got tier three. We talk a lot actually in our center about the missing tier two because you know, we often see in current systems that you've got some universal supports in place. And then when a young person has a problem, when it's identified like by a teacher or maybe a parent, or maybe there's a screening program in place, they go immediately to what we call tier three, which is more like treat mental health treatment services. And the the missed opportunity there is that so much could be addressed at what we call tier two, which is really, you know, often brief interventions, sometimes group interventions uh, to support young people with mild issues. So 
components of the program. You've got teaming, needs assessment, resource mapping, multi-tiered systems of support, and then of course, data and funding. So we have screening systems, we collect data on impact, and then we have sustainable funding that's diverse in terms of how we actually support these systems. So, so Sharon, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about M- MTSS because obviously kind it's of a our huge, language. yeah, it's our language. And obviously <laughs> it's your, I know a, you know yeah, that. Yeah, language, obviously <laughs> kind of a, a huge, you know, I, I think it's some, fair to say that every district kind of uh, has adopted, and I'm using the air quotes for those of us who can see us on, on video, has adopted MTSS. But our, our observation, I think, is like if we ask 50 districts to define their MTSS continuum in the domain of mental health, you'd probably get maybe not 50 answers, but you get about 43 answers. So, how do we That's get right. more? How do we get more consistency? Uh, and when we think about kind of our state and federal policymakers, how do you strike that balance between kind of establishing standards and getting good top-down guidance for how districts should be implementing, while also not being so prescriptive that you're kind of stifling creativity down at the at the district level? How do you find that that balance? Right. Yeah, I mean it's a constant. Struggle, right? And we know that education and even mental health is inherently local, locally controlled, locally driven. And part of it really should be, right? Because we know that there are unique needs for every community. And so we don't just want to say, well, here's the five evidence-based practices that every school in the U.S. needs, because that wouldn't make sense. Again, a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't make sense when it comes to education or mental health. At the same time, Uh, We work a lot with states and certainly with our federal and national partners to think about, well, what are some of the universal truths, uh, for lack of a better term, that we know are important for schools? And so we would say that some of these core practices, I've mentioned some of them already, mental health in your curriculum, social emotional competencies, having a, you know, brief inter, early identification and brief intervention support system for these mild issues. And then having mental health providers that are available, preferably in the school or certainly through a, a warm handoff that is followed through with to community providers for young people who are struggling more and may need what we would call tier three services. So it's a challenge. I mean, at at the same time, we have worked quite a bit, again, as I said, with federal and state policymakers around how can you craft policies and legislation to reflect some of those universalities that we think are really critical for young people to get mental health supports. And that would include things like having mental health screening available for students in schools. It can be crafted to the local needs, right? And have assessment instruments, for example, that are acceptable to families, have consent processes that are agreed upon by families and young people. But mental health screening in schools is policy work that we've seen done now with a lot of states. Having, again, mental health literacy as a required component of curriculum, having uh, social emotional learning standards as part of the work. So there are policy levers at both the federal and more so at the state level, since a lot of education is driven by states, uh, that really can be put in place so that they're not necessarily selecting the programs that need to be implemented within local school districts, but they're saying, if you're going to support young people's mental health, you're going to have these core components in place. And then here's some best practices. Here's a menu of best practices that you can choose from within those core areas. 
Yeah, it makes it makes sense. So, so when we think about barriers between kind of where, if you think about where districts are right now, where we ideally want them to get to in terms of exemplifying school-based mental health best practices, what are the top two or three barriers that you observe kind of with districts that is making it difficult for them to to, to do that? Yeah, so one, one barrier that I, I think of a lot in terms of how can we kind of move districts and schools beyond this is thinking that mental health really rests on the shoulders of the one or two child mental health specialists in a school building, whether they're community employed or school employed, you know, and really thinking more strategically about how do we leverage every adult and young person through peer supports to support the mental health of the students in the school building. Um, you know, I think that to really advance this work, uh, we have to be thinking beyond those one or two people in the building. We have to be equipping our educators with those mental health skills so that they can support students, not turning them into counselors or, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists, but really just giving them the skills they need to play their part and even having peer supports, as I said. So that's one of the challenges, I think, is how do we best leverage everybody in the school and in the community to support mental health needs. Um, and I, I just don't think, unfortunately, that our healthcare systems are set up in a way that allows for us to, to think in that way sometimes. Um, and I think we're, schools are trying to be responsive to the burden on teachers, and so they're reluctant to give teachers one more thing. Uh, yet when you talk to teachers, they often say, gosh, we would like to have more skills in this area. We just also need support in the process. Okay, so that's one area. Financing is certainly another. I mean, I never like to say, you know, that funding is the obstacle to mental health because often it's not a question of more money, but just how money is being spent, right? We spend a lot of money, for example, sending young people out of school, out of district, out of state even, uh, to get mental health supports that could reasonably pre be provided even in their home school environment if done well. So often it's not about needing more money, but kind of more strategically investing the money that we do have. I'm not saying that we don't need more money to support mental health in schools, but um, I think financing is a huge issue. You know, the good news is we are seeing more interest, as we've already alluded to at the national level in school mental health. And part of that interest is how do we better leverage mechanisms like Medicaid to support school mental health efforts? And so we know that a, a technical assistance center to support Medicaid in school health and mental health is going to be coming down the pike this summer. So there's a lot of activity in this space, but right now it's a real struggle. And of course, uh, I, I just, my, the last one I'll say, here is that I think, you know, we, we have a very long way to go in terms of thinking about how do we move beyond our, you know, traditional models of mental health, mental illness, and, you know, what we might think of as medical models and psychopathology, and really move toward models of um, you know, recognizing system influences on mental health and addressing system issues, whether it's racism or lack of inclusive environments for young people, especially some of our young people who we know are more at risk of mental health issues because of the systems that they've been dealt with, right? So whether it's our LGBTQ plus students or young people of color, we need to be thinking about mental health as system change, not just 
getting people into treatment or getting more access to people. That's really not um, the only solution to mental health here. Yeah, no, totally makes sense. I think your funding sustainability comments are really interesting. Med- Medicaid seems like it's going to be a much bigger piece of it. Um, and private insurance as well. I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on in California with this this law requiring, I think, private insurers to pay for school-length mental health services. But th- thoughts on on that? And, and is that potentially a blueprint for things that other states could potentially adopt in the future here as we move forward? Yep. My thoughts are that it's awesome uh, to see some movement in this space, not only of Medicaid, but also commercial insurance. You know, we, and, and often that's how it goes, right? We see changes in our Medicaid system and then commercial insurance follows because they have to. Um, and, and I love that California and hopefully other states to follow are really requiring commercial insurance to recognize schools as a critical place of mental health services. You know, the data has become increasingly clear over the years that young people are much more likely likely to receive mental health care and not just to like start mental health care, but actually continue it. The the number that we use based on some of the data so far is that young people are about six times more likely to complete mental health treatment when it's offered in the school setting than when it's offered in community mental health. And so we insurers, you know, whether it's our public mental health system or commercial insurance, have to pay attention to that and have to fund it. We can't just keep saying, well, schools are not a site of service. It's in their best interest ultimately because we know when people get complete courses of care, they're more likely to do better, right? It's like, I mean, so it's it's quite short-sighted on the part of commercial insurance or Medicaid to say that we're only going to invest in systems where they, you know, the, the modal number of treatment sessions that children and adolescents make it to in community mental health is less than four. So it's one to four, essentially, yeah. is yeah. how we often talk about it. And yet we know most effective mental health treatments are much longer than that. They don't have to be much longer. I know that there are brief interventions that can be effective as well. But, um, you know, we have to invest in places where young people are going to get a full course of treatment. And so I'm thrilled to see places like California and others, again, hopefully following suit, um, really requiring commercial insurance to see schools as a site of care. Yeah, it seems like a mixed bag of incentives for commercial insurers, right? If you're looking at it long term and like the total cost of care over like a child's right. lifetime or the, or the duration of their youth, I think it would be lower. I think if it's a commercial insurer that's focused on just to be, I don't want to be cynical, but a you know quarterly number for Wall Street or kind of a short-term incentive structure, right. I could see there being pushback on that. I'm, I'm fascinated about how California. I don't know. I don't know the details, but I'm actually surprised slash fascinated about how they got the the, the bill into law because uh, it, it does seem it's going to require commercial insurers to pay for a lot more in the short term that they were previously able to kind of push off onto the the budgets of local school systems. So. Uh, Uh, interesting days for sure. That's right. And it is, you know, it's what we need. We need visionaries who are going to say we can't only be thinking on political terms or Wall Street terms in the short term. But, you know, when we look at uh, the value of prevention, early intervention and doing it in places where people actually are, uh, that's where you get the most bang for your buck. It just, you know, it doesn't doesn't meet your quarterly um, bottom line, as you said. So, um, I hope that others will will take lessons learned from California here. Absolutely. I'm curious about, you know, a lot of districts that we work with now, especially coming, I guess we can say coming out of the pandemic, that's debatable. Uh, yeah. uh, and so a lot of districts would like to kind of reprioritize academic rigor. 
let's get back into, you know, focus on our academics and uh, especially school districts that may be blue ribbon or have a, a real high academic um, standard that they want to hold to. What do you say to, you know, districts that really want to move in that direction and put less emphasis on mental health? Yeah, look, I was on the phone yesterday, actually, with some high school students um, from uh, Southern State, and they were saying that in their ninth grade year, uh, which was uh, thinking back, where are we now? And it would have been the first year of the pandemic that they had SEL, social emotional part of their curriculum. And now they're back. It's their senior year. And they were lamenting the loss of it. They said that because of learning loss, their schools, their district had decided that they needed to kind of uh, cut the fat, right, is, is one of the ways it was described, but get rid of uh, some of these social emotional learning courses. I think they said they had 30 minutes a day of social emotional learning when they were in uh, their ninth grade year. And now they don't have any. And they were lamenting that in part because they said, now's when we need it. You know, we're making these huge decisions. We're all stressed. We lost some of our friends during isolation and we're struggling. And now our schools, which is a place we were able to get some of this before, have decided it's not important. So that's just an anecdotal example that, you know, timely for your question that these high school students were really struggling with some of the decisions that districts are making. So, you know, what do I say to administrators who, first I say, I get it, right? They have to prioritize what they're being measured by. Uh, At the same time, we know based on years and years of data that if we don't attend to the well-being of our young people, it will impact their academics, right? Whether it's attendance and there's tremendous data. Uh, we work a lot with attendance works. Uh, we're listening to Hetty Chang, who leads that organization recently talk about the, you know, the stark uh, numbers coming out for chronic absenteeism. And, you know, there was this presumption that COVID would be over, schools would reopen and attendance would go back up. And the numbers are still really horrific in terms of chronic absenteeism numbers. So uh, we have to be attending to mental health in order to see improvements in the learning loss that we experienced. So while I can understand the interest in getting back to academics, there has to be a both-and approach. Right, right, right. I just have one other question to ask. One of the trends that I see, too, in districts, and this was happening even before COVID, but now I think a lot of it is in response to teacher shortages. But we're seeing a lot of, like, block scheduling, where kids are in classes for sometimes 80 to 90 minutes. Um, And I think that that's also having an effect on mental health, as well as sometimes when you're doing the block scheduling, you may have three months of PE and then three months of music or, you know, specials, as they call them in schools. What do you think the lack of having like daily physical activity in school, what impact is that having on mental health? And, and what is your response to, to districts who feel like that's the way to go to have those block scheduling? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert in instructional design or curriculum <laughs> design. And so I'm sure that there are some very good reasons for moving to block scheduling to kind of try to address some of the learning loss. All that being said, We also have a lot of data that shows that young people benefit when they have playtime, movement time, free time, brain breaks, as they're often called in schools, movement breaks. And when you go down the developmental continuum, those breaks need to occur really frequently in order for students to stay engaged in learning. 
So while I'm sure there's very well-intended reasons, maybe even based on some data to move to things like block scheduling, there's a lot of data that would suggest that it's hard for any of us, including adults with fully formed frontal lobes, to actually engage for 90 minutes sitting still and to absorb the, the information that we're getting. So I think it's got to be a balanced approach. This is our first of two straight podcasts. So Lane and I are going to be like exemplifying that in like about an hour and a half, right? So, kind of, <laughs> well, you know. And, and to your point, Duncan, I think I'll that just be staring off into the middle distance, right? So, <laughs> I like, was going to say, yeah, you're going to yeah. start talking on yeah, pretty right, soon. Right. Well, yeah. To your point, Duncan, I think that it's having an impact on the teachers as well. It's hard right. to be doing that for these long periods of time and also not getting a break. And one of the things that, you know, at ESS, uh, you know, as the Senior Director of Professional Learning, that we're really emphasizing is the mental health of our, of our staff in schools, our educators as well, and how much they need to be taking brain breaks and coming to school with a full cup and how that deeply impacts the emotional regulation of an entire classroom. So you're absolutely right. I think it impacts the adults, even with their full frontal lobe, even with all that full frontal lobe, it's still making an impact. Well, and then the social media piece layered onto this, right? Oh, which, gosh. Which kind of, yeah. like, I think we're only in the early stages as a, as a you know, society of kind of understanding like what that's doing to kind mm-hmm. of attention and, and mindfulness and, and, and whatnot. That feels like an exacerbating factor on, on a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got a sound soundbite generation, a TikTok generation, which, you know, again, social media is not all bad. We just need to figure out how to leverage it to promote mental health uh, in, in positive ways. I just know um, on me personally... I have no attention span anymore because of social media. Everything I want in clips. I don't watch whole shows anymore. Just give me the highlights. Just give me the highlights. I think highlights. you're not alone. I know. Whenever we no think about product span. development, we're like, oh, two pages? That's uh-huh. too long. We need two bullets. Yeah. You know? I want the cliff notes yeah. on everything now. I just like quick, right. quick little reels, keep it moving, yeah, and which is you, a shame. And then it's you, a shame. And even on this podcast, <laughs> if someone gets bored on this, it's going to be, they're going to click yep. the advanced 30 second yep. button and just kind of like go out. Go Nobody's going to get bored. I agree. I agree. I, yeah. Of course, <laughs> of course not. Of not on this podcast, right? So absolutely. So, um, well, Cheryl, listen, want to be sensitive to your time. I know we're coming up on on time. A a final question we ask of all of all guests is just, you know, what's in your go to mental health toolkit? So, you know, breathing, meditation, mm-hmm. running, kind of. What do you? How do you stay grounded and centered? Yeah, for me, it's getting into nature. Uh, however, that is, I used to run a lot more than I do these days. I do more walking now. But any way I can get outside and into nature, even when it's cold outside, I will bundle up, you know, hat, gloves, full jacket, and just get some fresh air. And for me, that's always been restorative and the way to kind of ground myself. Uh, sometimes I'll practice some deep breathing and visualization while I'm doing it. But bottom line is get out into nature. That's that's what works for me. That's great. Are you a morning walker? Is that your your preferred your preferred time? So I'll walk at any time in the day. But I, I admit I am a morning person. You know, I'm one of the the, the 5 a.m. club, I guess we'd be called. Mm-hmm. So I, I do tend to get up pretty early uh, and get out there. Got it. I'm with you. That's my jam too. A morning walk. Nice. Yeah. I'll walk any time <laughs> with you. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. Noted. <laughs> Well, Sharon, this has been incredibly helpful. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your your kind of expertise and just, you know, thank you for the commitment that you've made to the mental health of our young people and uh, supporting our schools and just being great delivery, you know, locations for high quality mental health. Appreciate you and just all that, all that you do. Thank you. I appreciate all that you both do as well. And thanks for having me. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Sharon. Take care. Take care. So, Lane, what a, what a great conversation with uh, with with Sharon. Yeah. Uh, so glad she was able to share some sure. of her her thoughts with us. Um, I didn't let, want her to go. I could have talked to her. Yeah, for a lot no, longer. Ab- yeah. absolutely. Um, so, what what uh what inspired you this week, Lane? 
what inspired me? I, I came outside my door the other day and saw blooms starting. Things are, are starting to bloom. I can see my neighbor's uh, daffodils starting to come up. So spring is coming. Uh, what is the first day of spring? March 21st, I think. So I'm looking forward to my, my free Rita's on the 21st. <laughs> if you're um, listening outside of the, you know, Philadelphia tri-state area, uh, or I would even say, I think Rita's are even as far up as, as maybe New York. I don't know. Uh, I actually but, don't know what that is. Is that a, a flower type of flower? Re- no, oh, Rita's, Rita's water ice. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm no, sure. you yeah. have to get your free yeah, yeah. Rita's. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So gotcha. Rita's is a water ice place on the east I coast. It was like a flower I never heard of. No, it was like no, the, Rita. Yeah, yeah like, the, <laughs> like the margarita, like orchid or something like that. So I don't know. Is that a real thing? A margarita no, I just orchid? Totally oh, you made just made that. Up. That'd be good though, right? No, this is really just Rita's water ice, and they have a, a tradition of giving free water ice on the first day of spring. Now I, there have been times I've been outside in the snow getting my free water ice. Uh, so who knows what it'll be this year? But just to know that it's on its way. I'm seeing the first signs of spring and that's making me very I, I didn't know, very I didn't know Rita, Rita's gave away free water. I you didn't know that? No, I'm a that's Philly guy. Like decades. I, that's what, they're like a Philly company. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And so you go there on the first day. They advertise it. You go there on the first day of spring. I think you get like the kid size, which is totally enough for me, uh, especially at this time of year. But, you know, where it's still like, it's, you know, it's just the novelty. I want to have the water ice. It's not so much that it's so hot and it's refreshing yeah. <laughs> so much. So a kid's cup is fine for me. Um, you can get whatever you want and it's all free the first day of spring. You'll see people lined up. If you've wondered why you see people lined yeah. up, that's they're probably getting their free okay. water ice and, it. if it's early spring. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so for me, what, what inspired me this week is I'll, I'll, I'll label this as my, um, my daughter's progression as a junior chef. And what I mean by that is like we cook a we cook a family meal like mm-hmm. every Sunday. I enjoy kind of That's cooking so quite a bit. And my my 14-year-old has really kind of, you know, become quite the little kind of sous chef. And mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, and this is great in, in two ways. Like uh, it, it's just, it's so neat, as you know, to just see your kids kind of progress mm-hmm. on things and, yep. and build like a real passion for something. And yeah. I do feel like cooking is something that she, she very much enjoys. And just from a selfish standpoint, like yeah. actually You're being able to reduce the <laughs> amount of work that I'm doing in the kitchen, like by 50%, mm-hmm. it's pretty, it's pretty nice. Right. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, that's hey, a I, dream to have someone clean up behind you. As it, it, it is. Cause it, cause it's kind of like, Hey, I've got, you know, four pounds mm-hmm. of potatoes that need to be chopped. So like yep. the chopping of potatoes, no one enjoys peeling mm-hmm. the potato, chopping the potato, yep. probably one of the least pleasant like kitchen things that you can do. And now when you have a not just a willing, but an enthusiastic participant, right? Mm-hmm. She has not been jaded by the world of chopping, right? She yeah. hasn't gotten to that point where it's she's not like, a chore I, yet. I don't right? like chopping. This is not good. <laughs> so uh, I, I have gotten to that point where I don't like chopping. So uh-huh. now that I've I've got her in the mix to help out with that, um, that is a, a combination inspiring and satisfying at the same at the same time. But yeah, uh, well, you know, nowadays that kids can have their own cooking show. Hundred percent to get right on there. Yeah. So, so but ma- <laughs> mainly just like brings me joy to see yeah. you know her kind of get into something that she really kind yeah. of enjoys. So that's great. Developing to, a passion for sure. That yeah. is cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Link, great to see you. And you uh, uh, we hope that everybody enjoys the episode. Please join us uh, again for uh, the next My Beat podcast. Uh, please share this with your friends. We're, we've, we've got a, a, a great group of uh, subscribers and our listener count is growing kind of every week. But, uh, uh, you know, we created My, My Beat because we know that there is a need for information for um, educators who focus on school-based mental health. And so, uh, if you have friends, colleagues who you think can benefit from the MindBeat Cup podcast, please uh, uh, share this with them. And as always, kind of a like, share, and subscribe. 
uh, leave us comments. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'd love to, to do at some point in the near future a uh, like a listener mailbag. So uh, we'll, we'll probably uh, aim to do that in one of our upcoming podcasts. And mm, uh, we're excited about that yeah. for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, everybody. And uh, have a uh, great uh, rest of your week. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local health care provider. Thank you.